Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recruitomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. All right, so that was an awesome conversation with Paul. Paul Miller is the founder and president of Lighthouse Biopharma Consulting, and he's the chief scientific officer at Artisan Bioscience, and he gives amazing advice specifically about mentoring. Yeah, absolutely. I learned so much about mentorship from early stages, and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. He comes from a really strong background in science. He's been a leader at so many companies, big names that you'll recognize like Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Synlogic if you've been listening to the podcast. He has a strong microbiology background and 30 years in the industry. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. We certainly did. Paul, welcome to the show. We are so happy to have you. Today, we're going to start off the same way we start off every single show by asking, what did you want to be when you were seven? What are you now? And how did you get there? First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, the earliest sort of profession I could remember aspiring to was I wanted to be an astronaut. But I you know as a kid and then, you know, an age when the Apollo missions were happening and vaguely remember the moon landing and things like that. My parents got me a book about U.S. space program and all that. So I thought that would be really cool. But then as I went through school, I became more interested in science more broadly. And so I became drug discovery researcher, biopharmaceutical scientist. That's where I'm right now, and I've really enjoyed it as a career path. Well, you have a lot in common with Allison. That was her aspiration. I did. I really wanted to be an astronaut. When I was a kid, I was one of those kids who would sit in the refrigerator box and totally pretend that it was my space shuttle. And then I got older, and I realized I am really claustrophobic. And so it was not going to work for me. So... <laughs> Well, I obviously had no idea about the training at the time, you know, the selection process and what you had to go through to become an astronaut. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think there were a lot of reasons for it. In the end, it wasn't going to pan out for me. Not being math and physics was probably also going to impact that dream at some point. But I do love the idea of little kids who want to be astronauts is so fun. Like, it's so exciting, right? It's space. It's so cool. So, Paul, I've known you for years, and you have a really rich career history. Can you just give us a quick walkthrough of kind of the high points of that? Absolutely. So, yeah, when I went to college, I really had the goal of becoming a doctor, a physician. But during the course of taking a lot of my biology classes and things like that, particularly biochemistry, I became fascinated by the discovery process. How did we learn about diseases? What were some of the great observations? How did people figure these problems out? And decided I wanted to go in that direction. And that led me into sort of biological research, my PhD program which was in microbial genetics, as well as my postdoc. And from that point, I decided to go into biopharmaceutical research. I thought that would be really interesting to apply that kind of discovery knowledge to the invention of new medicines and supporting those kind of programs. I've had a really great set of experiences starting out at Warner-Lambert Company, Ann Arbor, Michigan, then Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and then finally a couple of biotech companies, Synlogic up in Cambridge, and then artisan in New Haven. So a very journey, but each of them has been a great learning experience working with great people. Yeah, that's awesome. We met at Synlogic and seen you at a few companies now. It's been a great follow your career. And this year you founded Lighthouse Biopharma Consulting. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and how it's going? It's what we're month nine of the year. How are the first nine months? Good. It's been an interesting journey. This has probably been one of the bigger jumps. And I can share a little bit about myself and why that, that has been my experience. But stepping back a bit, the last couple of years has been really challenging in biotech and biotech fundraising and things like that. And at Artisan, we found ourselves in a similar situation. We have very promising set of programs and a preclinical development candidate we were preparing to move into the clinic. But the fundraising has been really challenging. So earlier this year, we decided with our investors that we'd pare back our operation, just focus our resources on our lead program. And, you know, in agreement with our investors and our leadership, I pared back my role there. And that gave me an opportunity to continue to support Artisan and moving our most advanced program forward, but also setting up my consulting business so that I could work with other companies and other clients and help them with their drug discovery projects. I would say as an introvert, it's been really interesting because as a, having a company of one and, you know, Korean, I'm sure you started out this way also, you have to sell yourself, something I'm not that experienced in and didn't have to quite do so much of when I was working in you know, full-fledged organizations. But it's been great because through networking, I've gotten to interact with a lot of people in various stages of the drug discovery process, whether it's academics who are toying with an idea of trying to set up a company or already established companies who want to take their programs and move them a bit further. Yeah, I can relate to that for sure. I can tell you my introvert secret, if you want to hear it, is LinkedIn. So hiding behind LinkedIn and like really putting time and effort into getting that to be a great business development tool has been my very best investment. So we talk a lot about communication and within organizations. And you mentioned that Artisan has undergone, you know, some funding challenges. How have you been communicating that with the employees there and, you know, with your investors? There's a lot of communication that has to happen. Right. No, that's a great question. I think it's the big challenge. And it's an important aspect of this overarching leadership and mentorship theme here is being really thoughtful and deliberate about communication. There are overarching messages that everybody needs to hear. You have to choose the right tools for that. Everybody is not in the same place. Sometimes you do have to send things by email. It's best to be face-to-face -face with groups to make sure everybody's hearing the same thing. But I think as important, if not more important, is considering the impact on individual people. It's not going to affect everybody the same if you have a difficult message to share. And Artisan isn't the only company in which I've had to develop those skills and practice them. And when I was at Pfizer, I was there for 13 years, and there were several rounds of restructuring that happened there. And you do need to consider how people are going to take it. But you also can't always assume you know, oh, this person isn't going to be that affected by that. So you have to be very mindful that everybody is different. But for example, if a company was making a decision that a specific program wasn't going to move forward and that was going to infect the activities of people and might affect the roles of people, those people should probably find out first. It would be just sort of natural human nature for them to be, even if they understood the communication, to be frustrated by hearing it at the same time as everybody else, even though they're the ones who had, you know, put all the blood, sweat, and tears into the program. So I think being very thoughtful and mindful about communication and keeping individuals in mind when communicating is really, really important. 
Yeah, I really like that. I agree with that a lot, too. And I like the idea that, you know, you could get everyone into a room and have all these conversations face to face. So many of these companies now, including our own, we're all remote and that can be so challenging as well. It's really difficult to share hard news or intricate news sometimes if you're trying to balance out, you know, you're on Zoom and is someone having a tech problem? Is everyone's camera on? So I do think there's huge value to those things being done in person when they can be. Absolutely. And no matter really almost how much effort and energy needs to go into it, if you can be there in person, you want to be able to try to maintain some level of trust, even if the person is really affected by it. And then the other people who may be less affected are watching how the affected people are treated. That's important in retaining some loyalty and relationship with organization that is going to go forward from that communication point. So it isn't about making everybody like you. It's really far from that, but it's really you invest in organizations that you trust you have to build that trust up and you have to work hard to retain it. And I think communication, especially in difficult times, is an important test of whether somebody's, you know, working on that trust relationship. Can you tell us a little bit, we're leading in there, so I'm just going to jump right into the question. Can you tell us a little bit like your leadership style and sort of how you've developed and changed your leadership style throughout the years and all these different companies you've been in? Because that's really what we're driving at here is how to be a good leader. Well, I do think that the communication piece is really important. I think that you do have to work with some humility. People are looking to you to make decisions and provide guidance to the organization and direction. But at the same time, I don't think that you can pretend to know all of the answers and you have to be open and honest about where you're confident and certain and where you're exercising your best judgment despite the uncertainty surrounding this situation. I think another thing is you just you need to be accessible as a leader. It's very, very important to be open and honest with communication, to get to know the people in your organization, to be accessible to people. As busy as you may be in senior leadership positions, if you look like you can't be bothered all the time, that people who have an important issue feel like they're putting you out if they say, hey, do you have a minute? You need to be much, much more open and willing to be interrupted, to be accessible, to be available, and to let people know that your professional relationship with them is really important. It isn't about just giving people assignments and expecting them to deliver and come back for the next assignment. I think you really need to be both a leader and a collaborator and a partner with the people in your organization. You're all adults. I think you need to challenge each other to sort of behave and develop relationships in that way. Those are a few of the keys. And again, I think that you... By doing those things, you can build trust with people. When people trust you, you get the best out of them because they have confidence that you will be supportive of them and be helpful with them and help develop them. And as you're doing that, they will be better contributors to the organization. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into our mentorship questions for you. We've seen you, you know, really take people under your wing and mentor them well over the years. Can you tell us about your own mentors, though? Who sort of set that precedent in your life? I don't think, Karina, when I was sort of first starting out in my career, I had very good appreciation for the importance of that, but reflected on it later on when I started to interact with other people and realized, oh, those early mentors I had were great. Not everybody's like that. My PhD advisor, Harry Tabor, my postdoc advisor, Ellen Hinnebush, were really smart scientists, but really great people who spent a lot of time with me teaching, being available, being accessible. And although they're both 
in academic settings where, you know, they're really, really busy all the time, they demonstrated through their actions a good work-life balance, an understanding for how hard science is and that things don't always go the way you want. And so I built off of that. And then my first two bosses, mentors in industries, Steve Graycheck at Warner Lambert, Steve Gilman at Pfizer. I mean, Steve Graycheck helped me a lot of effort into helping me with that transition from an academic trading setting to working in industry. And then Steve Gilman, when I went over to Pfizer, from you know working and leading science in a lab environment to leading a department, being a manager and that kind of a leader, and the transition you need to make in roles there. So I got off to a good start with some really great advisors who were great role models for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you find that those mentors held you to a pretty high standard and sort of helped you to develop upward? Yes, absolutely. Both scientifically and professionally and from a leadership perspective, I think the leadership mentors that I've had weren't just simply coaching me and guiding me along. There were describing what the expectations were for successful leadership and what the fullness of that role was, and then giving me guidance on how to develop the skills I needed to be able to do that. I think what was also sort of implicit in that, which I've tried to take to heart, is, okay, now that you're moving up into leadership, you're going to have to do this for your people now. So you can learn it, but can you teach it? And I think that's the other part of the leadership role is being able to not just master this part of the job, but teach the next group of emerging leaders, you know, their roles and how to do it as well. So I think that's really interesting because how do you actually teach someone to be a great mentor is one of my questions. I think that it's, we all talk about it and everyone wants to be a good mentor, I think. But how do you actually know if you're doing a good job? I mean, it's hard. I I think part of it is whether the people you're mentoring are succeeding. And I think also whether or not you've identified where they need to be mentored and how you can help them. So, for example, and this happens more in biotech companies uh, and smaller companies, in larger companies, there may be formal mentoring programs where emerging junior leaders are partnered with somebody else in the organization who can help them develop their leadership skills, but who may not be their boss. Sometimes there's a belief that separation of roles is helpful. But in a small company, you don't have that luxury. You know, the boss is the mentor. There aren't that many mentors to go around. So, you know, one of the things I ask myself is, okay, what is the skill set that this person needs to develop? If it's sort of leadership or growing into a team role, I can help them with that. If it's something more technical, I may not be able to, but as a mentor, my goal is to find them somebody who they can mentor and connect them with. So, for example, we had somebody at Artisan who was a really strong laboratory scientist, had worked in that role for several years, but was very interested in moving into business development. So one of the things I did was to partner her with one of our board members who was very strong on the business side, was willing to spend some time speaking with her about you know, how his career developed, how he got into his role, and whether he knew of any programs that she might be able to enroll in, where she would get a little hands-on experience learning about business development and things like that. So if it's working, you kind of sense it's that kind of feedback loop that you're on the right track, they're becoming more independent in that area. I think that's a good point, though. The mentoring doesn't necessarily have to come from you. If you can make the connections, the networking is really half the battle sometimes, is just being able to make that connection for someone else to learn from. 
No, absolutely. That's really important um, that you shouldn't feel sort of unsuccessful or inadequate as a mentor because you yourself don't have all of the experiences needed to help this person with where they want to go with their career, what parts of their professional development they need help with. I want to touch a little bit, Paul, on your new company. Well, you know, what was interesting in setting up Lighthouse and some of the clients that I've connected with, it created for me a realization that I really like mentoring. And what I really like is working with early stage startup companies where the focus isn't necessarily on having some sort of deep-seated technical expertise. So working with an artificial intelligence company and making them even better artificial intelligence, that's not the piece that I'm looking for. It is more of a new company, an early stage company has a great new technology in the biopharmaceutical therapeutic area, but they need to learn how do I transition this into a drug discovery thing? How do I take this novel technology or observation and convert it into something that can actually generate a product that could be useful for patients. So that piece and helping the team mold itself into sort of a drug discovery organization, recognize what additional skill sets it might need. And I'll tell them, go to Recruitomics to find your best talent. But those are the parts I really like doing because it's very personal. Many of these teams are really just eager to learn about what they don't know and how they can gain that knowledge. I think it's a win-win there. And from them, I really learn a lot about the new science and exciting technologies that develop. Continuous learning is really a huge motivation for me. Yeah, well, we appreciate the recommendation. And similarly, when we work with small companies, it's interesting to see, you know, some founders come into ecosystems where they have a lot of expertise surrounding them. You know, I'm thinking of some of the bigger VCs with more of the incubator style And so these founders come with these great scientific ideas and they're cutting edge. They're coming right out of school with all of these energy and enthusiasm. And then they have a great team of experts around them to help grow a business out of that. Some founders are not that lucky. Some founders don't have that support network. And so when we go into a small company, you know, often we try to connect them with that mentorship that they do need in those different business areas to take their awesome scientific idea and make it a drug, a therapy, a platform, whatever it is. So that's really speaking our language. So an example of one mechanism like that I've become really interested in and involved in is this program, Nucleate. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It started up in the Boston, Cambridge area in San Francisco, but there is now a chapter in New Haven. I was contacted to see whether or not I would be interested in serving as a mentor in the New Haven Nucleate program. And over the past couple of years, I've worked with a couple of companies there startup companies, companies in formation, and help them get started and give them a bit of a boost there. And I've really enjoyed that. Part of the reason for moving ahead with Lighthouse is to identify more of those opportunities to work with these early stage companies and help them. Yeah. How are you finding your clients? Are you, I mean, we've talked about LinkedIn, we've talked about various forms of networking. Are these sort of people you're connected with organically or... Is it coming from Nucleate? Where, how are you connecting with these people? Well, I mean, Nucleate is one area, but a lot of it is organic and through my network, having you know worked in different companies and different areas. I did socialize on LinkedIn when I launched the company and got some leads from there. But other contacts I have through my career 
have reached out to me and said, hey, there's this group over here that I've been talking to and they could use some help and I think you'd be helpful for them. So it's sort of grown organically in that kind of way and it's gotten me reasonably busy. So, Paul, I have a question that's not on the list, but I am curious. So, you know, obviously we worked together at Artisan and we know that New Haven, you know, was not the hub that Cambridge is, not, you know, the seaport, bringing tons of people in. You've worked across a variety of organizations and with what you're seeing now, are you seeing that the hub of, you know, the central biotechs that we're used to are as important to these new founders or are you seeing companies kind of grow from wherever they are, be it New Haven, you know, the Amherst area or anywhere else? I feel like we're branching out of Cambridge and, you know, the more Silicon Valley-esque historical biotech centers that we're used to. But what's your perspective on this? What are you seeing? So I'll try not to be too long-winded on this, but I think this is a fantastic question. In my perspective, I am seeing a lot of these other smaller hubs really take root and develop, and for a few reasons. But I don't think it's at the expense of the Cambridges and the San Francisco, the Bay Area, and things like that. I think it's sort of in addition to And there are a couple of reasons. One, major universities in these smaller areas, a good example is Yale in New Haven, have kind of caught, you know, the vibe of translating their internal academic science into commercial opportunities. And so they've really ramped up their business development offices and created a lot of enabling functions that allow their faculty to be able to consider the idea of starting up companies. Obviously, MIT and Harvard and universities like that have really refined that practice. The other thing is, is that I think, you know, because of COVID, there have been more people who have traditionally just migrated to the major hubs who have been willing to give a look at some of these other hubs that aren't that far away, but maybe not in the main area. So increasingly over the last couple of years, companies in New Haven have been successful at attracting talent from outside of the New Haven area and are not really reliant exclusively on Yale or Connecticut graduates to staff their organizations. The cost of living is lower, housing is more affordable, schools are good, and still are only two hours from New York and Boston in the area. So people have been given much more serious look to some of these areas over the last couple of years. And I think that's going to continue. The state of Connecticut is really investing heavily in growing the bio pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry in the state. There's a lot of laboratory space construction ongoing in New Haven. So there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. And so I think a lot of reason to believe that it'll continue to grow. Again, I don't think it's decreasing the impact or importance of the areas like Cambridge. It's just giving people who are looking at that in their careers and other options for places to do the work that they want to do. Yeah, we're certainly seeing candidates that are preferring to stay in these uh, decentralized locations as well. And I think the thought pattern before was that the infrastructure and the close proximity was really, really important. I think we're starting to move away from that just because we are communicating more asynchronously and everything. But your comment about the state investing, I think that's really key because it is, it doesn't matter where you are, you need the lab space and that is expensive and the infrastructure to even get that up and coming is expensive. So have you been involved at all with the state in any way? Are there any organizations that you've been kind of pushing to do more? 
I've not been in a formal role perspective, but I have been invited to participate in workshops, in conversations that have involved state leaders and even some national leaders who want to understand what the state of health is of the biotech industry in the state and in the New Haven community, what kind of investments or infrastructure would enable further growth, things like that. So that's been useful. The state reaching out to members of the biopharma community to try to understand what they can do to help continue the development and growth of the industry. State of New Hampshire, take note. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to see New Hampshire do a bit of investment there. Sure, sure. Well, you have probably, I'm sure, a lot of scientists who live and work in the Boston, Cambridge area who actually live in New Hampshire. They do, yeah. We've become a bit of a commuter hub up here. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about what you've seen as some of the major shifts in biotech as a whole throughout your career and what's just getting you excited right now. One of the things that I was considering questions like this is one of the constants is the continuation of technology emergence. And, you know, I mean, it seems like it's exploding right now. There's always been something new. It's motivated by the need to come up with new ways to understand disease, understand biology. Overall, one shift that I think has been really interesting in the biopharmaceutical industry um, is a shift towards biology. When I first started in the industry, it was a heavily chemistry-led led field. And chemistry was really strong. I think it's matured more quickly than the biology has. But finding new targets was very difficult. The emergence of things like genome sequencing and all sorts of omics technologies has allowed us to understand biology and find new targets and has put more of the onus on the biologists to find and validate targets that can now be the subject of chemistry investigations or large molecule antibody kind of thing. So I think all of those things, the omics explosion has been terrific. Artificial intelligence is obviously a big deal. I don't downplay it, but I don't agree that it's new. So for example, in the 1990s, we were working with novel targets that came out of genome sequencing in the microbiology area, but we had X-ray crystallography and were able to solve the three-dimensional structure and use that to guide the design of small molecules and dock them into those three-dimensional structures. That was computationally driven. What's different right now is the incredible computational power that exists through cloud computing and things like that that allow you to do some of those kinds of analyses in minutes or you know tens of minutes and not days. And so that's been remarkable. I think the ability to analyze complex data sets quickly and generate insights is really transforming the way science is done. And it's allowing for an iteration between basic science and the clinic, because in the clinic now you're able to gather large amounts of data from patients and use that to help learn more about your therapeutic approaches and do more about target validation and patient characterization. So there's just so much going on right now. I think it's important always, though, to keep in mind to distinguish sort of the real potential and promise from some of the hype that happens every once in a while. I've worked in a couple of fields that have been a little bit of a victim. When I was at Synlogic, we worked in the synthetic biology area when synthetic biology first became sort of a frontline kind of area of biomedical research, there was a lot of hype and promise that, you know, within a couple of years, we'd have all these drug candidates. And 
Synlogic now has a phase three program, which I'm pretty excited about for female catenuria, which is promising, but it hasn't exploded the way it was originally promised, but it is maturing and it is going to deliver. And similarly, microbiome research came out as, you know, this new area of investigation. And it turned out to be more complicated than had originally been hoped. But companies are persevering. We're learning more and more about how our endogenous microbiota influence inflammatory neurologic diseases and things like that. And as we continue to tease that biology apart, we will be able to learn how to translate that into therapies. But you know, just because an area is opened up and becomes promising doesn't mean that next year you're going to be taking a prescription based on that area of science. That's really fascinating. You really struck a nerve with me, the crystallography. Even back 14 years ago, I was doing a crystallography project and we crystallized my protein bound to different molecules. And it would take two weeks to resolve a structure. And that's not that long ago. And then fast forward just a couple of years ago, two years ago, I was working with a client and they were resolving hundreds of structures at a time in the cloud in a matter of hours. They might go home for the night and let them resolve. But it just, it blew my mind. That really was the limiting step was this processing power. If I can tie that back to the mentoring piece, one of the things that's I think is interesting is that is to retain the sort of profound excitement and sense of accomplishment of you know, sort of younger scientists who've been involved in some of these technology advances, but want to apply it to drug discovery to help them understand how do I integrate this science into sort of more established drug discovery processes? Because there are certain things in drug discovery that you're still going to have to prove true in order to be able to have a therapy, have permission to go into patients in clinical trials and make it to market. So it isn't the case that, for example, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence mean we never have to do any more experiments. They tell us which experiments to do and where to look, but there is still a validation. There are great computational tools right now that can tell you what the three-dimensional structure of a protein is just based on its amino acid sequence, but it's worth periodically generating the crystal structure to confirm that your computational model is correct. Over time, maybe you'll never have to do that, but you still have to verify things that are computationally suggested. So as we're talking about this, we're talking about all these AI and tech advances. One of the conversations I have fairly often, and I think it's super interesting, is how this is going to impact the level of education people need to join a biotech. You know, what we're starting to see and hear some rumblings of are, does everyone need a PhD? Do they need an advanced degree? Are there certain things we can just train people out of high school to do and be in the lab and get things done? And so I think that's going to have some interesting knock-on effects as this technology does become more, as it becomes more commonplace in the lab and maybe a little bit more reliable. I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of where you see that going and maybe the shift you've already seen with roles that once were super highly technical, required a really high degree of education, maybe becoming more open to broader audience. So, Allison, I don't know that I'm going to have a perfect answer for you on that. I think we're all sort of watching this evolve. And I think in the educational area, part of what you're seeing is a blend of concern, but also anticipation, because it should be possible for people to learn things more efficiently due to a lot of these kind of advances. One of the challenges, obviously, is 
when you're gathering knowledge and trying to increase your own understanding of things through a computationally driven tool to be able to confirm that the information you've gathered is actually accurate information. Although I think we're always completely trusting of our teachers who are the ones who are teaching us everything. There's a less confidence that if you used ChatGPT to pull together some information that you would necessarily have the same level of confidence in what you've pulled together. Nonetheless, it's hard for me not to believe that this can't be helpful in accelerating the way that people learn and learn about things that they're really curious about and to accelerate their own learning. I mean, it seems possible that over a summer vacation, if you were interested in geology, you might be able to gather a fantastic amount of information rather than wait until the fall semester geology class to get started on what you want to learn. So there has to be a way to be able to integrate these things together to accelerate customized learning for people. You know, in terms of the PhD piece, one of the things that has always been, I think, true for me and from my own experience in my own organizations that I've been in and that I've led is that PhD is a really an important training opportunity to give you advanced, sophisticated learning in a particular field, but that can be overcome by on-the-job experience. I've had a number of senior leaders in my organization who've moved up quite far in the organization without a PhD simply because they had, you know, sort of the curiosity, intellect, drive, and motivation, and hands-on experience from working in the field, there was no reason to say, oh, you can't have that job because you don't have a PhD. Be to their discredit and the organization's discredit. So there have to be other ways to learn early on as well that might mitigate someone's decision not to pursue a PhD, but still nonetheless provide them with the background to be able to pursue, you know, to advance their careers as far as they want to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're seeing some pretty cool learning tools coming out for the K through 12 space that are almost like learning companions that identify people's areas that they need to maybe a little bit more tutoring and help in. And I guess my hope with that is that partly that integrates a knowledge of even what career paths exist within an area, because I hear over and over that folks who go into science often had a good science role model. And so they knew about it. So, you know, maybe that'll overcome some of those gaps in our current education system at some point. That's my hope. No, it makes sense. But I'm not sure I see that in the near future for something like leadership, where I think leadership really has helped best when somebody is paying attention to you as you're developing as a leader and providing timely feedback on how you're doing and helping with that process. I mean, there obviously are people who are born leaders, but I think even them probably need some rough edges rounded off a little bit through the help of others who've gone before them. Oh, yeah. You're always learning to be a better leader. <laughs> that does not stop. So when do people call you in in your consulting capacity? And when do you actually wish they would call you in? Are they calling you in soon enough in their process? Or, you know, when do you enter the world of a startup? It is a mix. I mean, there are people who have called me in very early where it feels like the timing is really right and they're ready to try to learn more about how they evolve their business. But, you know, I do have one client I'm working with right now where I kind of wish we had interacted a year ago, although I personally may not have been ready at that moment, but somebody maybe had, I think, because you can move a little bit far down the road 
sort of trying to feel your way through the drug discovery process without internal experience that would have been helpful. So having somebody at the earlier on in the planning stage. You know, when I'm working with some of these companies, one of the things that I found is really most effective is to have them tell me what they think they should do because they have given a lot of thought to it and they have tried. And most of what they have thought about or considered or put into their plan is probably right or good thinking. I might sequence it a little differently, but more of what I'm looking for is the gaps that they didn't see or can't anticipate because they just haven't done drug development before and they don't know okay, you should factor this into your planning, which can have people and budget implications. So catching them before it's too late is, or before they've gone too far is, is the helpful thing. And that's one of the reasons I like working with companies that are just forming early on, is I think there's a blank slate, less commitment. You know, the cement isn't dry yet completely, and you can, you have a lot more flexibility, a lot more receptivity. Well, Paul, typically we ask people where they see the next stage of their career going. And, you know, if they wanted to kind of expound a little bit about their ideal retirement, but you've just launched this. And so I can't imagine you're really thinking about the next stage of your career aside from continuing to grow the business. It is, but I did want to say that I'm quite flexible about what that might look like. I like being busy right now, but if I was working with a client where the relationship evolved to the point where they said, hey, would you be willing to consider joining us full time in this role? I would seriously consider that. I mean, if it felt like that was really a good decision, I would do that. I could delay the consulting piece a bit longer. But down the road, I eventually want to consult. I can never see myself, though, not in the near future saying, "Okay, I'm just going to quit cold turkey and play golf. I would be bored. The learning stuff is too much fun. It's sort of addicting, and I just want to keep doing that. Biotech obviously draws the same type of person in, because I think we have yet to hear someone say they're ready to just retire or they look forward to doing nothing. Everyone's like, no, I'm never giving it up. I love this. (laughs) And I had a friend I've known for decades who retired a while ago, and he posted on his LinkedIn probably a year and a half ago, done, over. He worked for the same company for 30 years in I've had it. Six months ago, I reconnected with him. He's consulting. You know, he may have wanted a change from his specific work environment and thought that might mean just stopping his career altogether, but he couldn't. I think that's probably, to your point, Allison, probably more typical of people who work in this field. I think so. It's a trap. You can never get out. You just don't want to. You're right. It's just the pace of the discoveries, and you don't want to be left behind. You want to be right there with everyone. Oh, absolutely. And I almost feel like it's walking out of the movie theater three quarters of the way through a good story. You want to see how it turns out. I love that. Now, you've given a lot of good advice, but what is one extra juicy piece of advice that you would give to an emerging leader in biotech, maybe a brand new founder? I would say to always make sure you have skin in the game, personal, visual skin in the game. So if you're working with building the organization and a team, you are constantly, even if you're the most senior person in the organization, you're constantly asking, what can I do to help you succeed in your job? And making it clear in the fullness of the company, you know, I have a role I'm playing and I'm doing it. 
I don't want to leave negative examples, but I think we, you know, you can see people in very senior leadership roles who appear to really just sort of enjoy being off in the high profile networking part of it. And, but the team really would like to see more of them and understand what they're doing and how that helps the organization grow. Living that and doing that with the team all the time with the company is important. I really like that. We start with the same question. We usually end with the same question. What is a great nonfiction or fiction book you have read recently or your favorite of all time? We are compiling a big list of everyone's favorite books. It's going to be great. doesn't have to be business or science-based. It can be anything you like. (laughs) The truth is often stranger than fiction. I tend to read almost exclusively nonfiction. I'm a bit of a history buff in a book that I read recently that I really liked is called Mornings on Horseback. If you know this book, this is by David McCulloch, who's a historian, and it's about Teddy Roosevelt in his early years in his life. So Teddy Roosevelt is this larger-than-life kind of big guy, but it was really interesting to see, you know, how does somebody become that? And he had a very interesting background, but he was came from a privileged background, so it's not a rags-to-riches story. But what was interesting about him is he had great parental upbringing in that his family highly valued service and philanthropy and giving to people. And he grasped that. He's known as probably the person who had the most fun being president because it gave him a chance to try to do big things. He had a lot of big ideas. He wasn't perfect. Not everybody who listens to this podcast is going to agree with me on all this. But I think the point is when you're going into roles with leadership, I think if you will be successful, if you aspire to higher levels of responsibility, if you're doing it to make your organization, your teams more successful, you know, to be able to improve the chances that you can accomplish the teams, the things that the company wants to accomplish. And so I thought that was a really interesting story of his personality and kind of what motivated him to do the things that he did and how, why he became sort of the kind of leader that he's recognized as. That sounds fascinating. Mornings on horseback. It's going on the list. Paul, where can people reach out to you if they want to learn more? We're obviously going to link your LinkedIn here. Anything else? Well, LinkedIn is the best place to reach out to me. And again, I'm increasingly engaged in it. I check it quite often, respond to everybody who contacts me. So that's the best place to do that. I am pondering setting up a website as another option. I do appreciate the connection on and the resource there, but LinkedIn is the best. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recrudomics Consulting. To find out more about Recrudomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, visit www.recrudomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recrudomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recrudomics Consulting, thanks for listening.